There are Bibles located around a chair near you, and then we also have phones and devices. I, I kind of wanted to do a little bit of a different thing. Rather than me preach at you, I want us to look and maybe do a Bible study together from the very, at the very beginning and start of this thing. But then I am going to end up probably preaching because that's what I've been called to do. So if you could turn to 1 John, or John chapter 1, we're going to be looking at the first 18 verses. I want to read this because this is a multifaceted text that we're looking at today. And I want to kind of break it down. For those youth, uh, I know that we this semester are going to be beginning uh, HP University. And we're going to be engaging in hermeneutics, the study, how to study scripture. And so some of the things that you're going to be learning is what I'm going to employ this morning in uh, the beginning here, my introduction. And so everybody grab a Bible. Let's get all warm and cozy and cuddle up here to chapter 1 of the book of John. Look with me as I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has not come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as to the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's pray. Father, we come now to sit around as brothers and sisters, as family members, You being our Father, as you speak into us your word of truth and life. And may we, from this truth, be illuminated and light our lives up in Jesus Christ, your Son, that you sent and gave for us. We pray now that you would open our ears, that you'd open our hearts and our minds to receive this truth and to live by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's several observations I want to begin this morning, so bear with me as we walk through this, but I want you to engage with the scripture with me. John is a tremendous author. He is writing in such a way that I think it's very thought-provoking. One, I've been poring over this text for the last two weeks, and I still have yet to unpack all the things that it's going to reveal to us. But there are nine things that I want to point out by way of structure, how John is opening up his gospel to us, to a specific audience. And it's multifaceted. And we're going to get into reasons why I want to kind of geek out over this passage here. But first, I want us to understand that this language that John begins to use here in chapter 1 should recall our minds or our memories back to Genesis. Why is he doing that? Here it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It has elements in terms of life and light shining in the darkness. Can anybody recite for me the, with the Genesis account of creation? It should be happening in your heart and your mind right now, and it's very intentional what John is doing. 
Because what he's saying is, do you guys remember Genesis? Do you remember what we have memorized and studied? Now let me call your attention to a new Genesis that is going to be impactful into your life, is going to hold all sorts of significance, and that new Genesis, that new birth that we all must experience, comes in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so, for anybody interested in how the world is created, anybody interested in what it means to be reborn, this is one facet of the story that John is laying before us. A new Genesis. So that's one angle that you can approach this text with. Another angle you can approach it is, because we're in Christmas tide, is the Christmas story. We're all familiar with Luke. We're all familiar with the genealogies of Matthew. And those two genealogies that Luke and Matthew give us point to the fact that Jesus is the son of man and he's also the son of David. But here, John wants us to narrow in on a new uh, uh, text here, a new narrative about Christmas that Jesus is the Son of God. And so it has a Christmas message, very pointed Christmas message, and this is why we, in our lectionary readings, are doing it on Christmas Day or Christmas Tide. So that's one angle that we can approach today, right? Another angle is being an apologist. Because as you break down, what you're seeing here is something that I've learned recently. And this is, uh, let me break this down for you. As Anslums, Anslums, yeah, let me just say his name inappropriately. Uh, Anslums, uh, ontological uh, argument. Ontological means essence and uh, existence. So here's the argument. The argument is, for the existence of God, that it is great to have something not only in, in your mind, in the imagination... Right? An idea, but for that idea to also to become reality. So it's not something that we just namely make up in our minds, but it's what we make up in our minds that also comes to fruition in reality. He says that would be better for something to come into fruition, to come into reality. And so he says, for the existence of God then, isn't it, by definition, God is the greatest of all things. He's the greatest of all ideas. Right? And so if we were to say that we can think of something, but it also comes true, that has to be God. Because by definition, God is the greatest of all things. Okay, that's his argument. All right? And so his argument is very heady, but it does work. And I think John is employing, because he's reaching out as an apologist, to also say that this idea of word, that this idea of logos, that these ideas that man has about the reason and meaning for life has come into reality in Jesus. Jesus isn't just some theological category, some abstract idea, and something that's really put together really well, but he has come in person and in reality. And that is the greatest thing. That proves that he is the son of God, his existence. So we can approach this text as an apologist. So we got this creation story theme going on. We got this Christmas theme going on. We got an apologist theme coming on. We got this philosopher idea happening here. Multifaceted, right? Because this word, word, is logos. And in the Greek, there's this idea in philosophy that was during around the time he was writing, this idea that the word of the logos represents all things that hold together in a logos. They find their meaning and reason in the word. And so the philosophers often would talk about this, reasoning. And so we can approach this text even as with a narrative of the philosopher. The next thing we could do is as a Hebrew, because they would understand this word as lady wisdom the very thing that navigates our life and to, make, to help us make the best decisions, right? Here's another facet way that we can do. Not only are, can we approach this text as a Hebrew, as a philosopher, as an apologist, as someone who's interested in creation and somebody interested in, in reading another Christmas story, but also in evangelists. Here spread out through all of this is the testimony that John the Baptist gives. And some scholars would say that the reason why these are sprinkled throughout the narrative is to point to those who have yet not to believe in Jesus to say that that we're following after John the Baptist to say, no, follow the Son of God. John even testified to him. And so John, the author here, is even coming as an evangelist to give you good news. That's one way that I can head today 
through this narrative as an evangelist. And that's what I, may, I might do. The other part that we can go and approach this text is as a poet. This is one of the, the things that you're going to learn in hermeneutics, kids, is how it is written. There is something in poetry called a chi- uh, chiasm, right? It is a, a, a stepping um, steps, stepping steps. Let's just go with that. There, there's steps, and these the steps climax, and then they work their way down. And if you were to break these 18 verses down, what you're going to find is that we begin with the identity of this word, right? We move from identity to the testimony about the word, verses 6 through 8. Then we look at the light being incarnate, being made flesh. That's verses 9 and 10. When it reaches its climax in the response to the word, right? And then we start going back, the word incarnate, and then the testimony again, and then Jesus incarnate. So there's this chiasm, and if you're interested in poetry, then you can approach this text as a poet and say, what meaning and significance is John trying to communicate? If you're just a, if you love stories and you just want to be, uh, you love narrative, that's another aspect and angle that we can approach this text. In verse 17, there is this building up of this narrative, this word. What is this word that was in the beginning that's with God? What is it? Jesus is finally mentioned at the climax and peak in verse 17. So John is also laying before you a story, a narrative that it's like, ooh, who's this hero? Who's the word? Who is it? Oh, you got supporting roles. You got John the Baptist coming and testifying. You got somebody lifting out the hero. Who's this hero? And he names him in verse 17. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we can approach this text. I could come and speak the rest of my time approaching uh, this text as not only a poet, but also as a storyteller. I can also approach this, and probably one of my favorite ways to approach this is as a theologian. You know, I I don't know, I'll I'll share this. I didn't ask him. I don't ask for permission when I share stories. But, um, you know, one of the things, Marshall often talks about how, um, you know, he wasn't a great student growing up. And I said, well, what changed for you? He goes, theology. Same with me. Like, I, I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed or the brightest color in the crayon box, but... I, when, it, when I first engaged in what I refer to as truth or theological truths or finally understanding who God is, that's all theology is. It's the study of God, getting to know him and as he's revealed himself. Man, it, it kindled in me a fire that has never burned out, and I long for it. It's one of the things I, I want to wrap my mind around, theological concepts, and I can approach this text as also a theologian, uh, one that understands What do I need to know about God? And what's cool is that John gives us quite a bit of detail to stimulate our theological minds. So why am I talking about these nine different approaches? There's more, but I only stopped with nine because I'm going to try to be brief. That's not probably going to happen today, unfortunately. But um, why, why why am I talking Who cares, Bruce, of all these observations and all these different approaches to the text? Why why should I care? It's a great question, one that I hope that we can answer. The reason why I talk about all these things and I want to geek out with you and and kind of dive in and do a little bit of Bible study is because God has revealed himself to us. And this text points to the fact that no matter where you come from in your life, no matter what you're appro- how you're approaching this text, how you're approaching God's word, that it has something to speak into your life, no matter if you're a philosopher, an apologist, a theologian, somebody who's looking for a good story, somebody who's in the spirit of Christmas, somebody who's trying to understand why their life exists and get meaning and purpose, and for all of that and, and the search of truth that all of us are engaging in. No matter where you're coming from, John is taking care of you. And that's pretty important. That was the reason why we spend time pointing out there's nine different ways you can approach this text. And there may be nine different ways, but there is going to be only one conclusion. Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. So no matter all the various ways you approach the text. The conclusion's the same. It also speaks to the fact that this text is relevant for each and every person in this room. And if it's for each and every person in this room, it is reasonable to think that it's also 
relevant to each and every person in life. And oftentimes, I'll, I'll admit, I approach texts to, to find that relevance. How can I relate to the text? And how can I, as I've gotten to know you, how can I bring the text and you together so that it can pierce your heart and pierce your life so that you can orient your life to it? And I do that, and that's good. And we're going to talk about some of that. But I never want to overshadow with relevance the reverence for God. There are some things that we will not fully comprehend or understand, but it should never diminish the reverence we ought to have for God. This text not only is, allows us to relate to God in multiple different ways as he reveals himself, but nonetheless, we should revere him. He is God. He is holy, regardless of if you understand or comprehend it fully. And so as we go through this text, my aim, actually, is not for you to necessarily relate to every aspect of it, but just to revere God for all that he has done and spoken through it. Another thing, that looking at all this multiple, multiple, multiple facets of this story, of this narrative that John is writing to us, is the fact that we can, regardless of where we find ourselves, or regardless of what we experience, that truth is a reality. And truth can be reclaimed even in the midst of counterfeit truth or lies. Meaning, just like Christmas, you can engage with all kinds of people at Target and all the places as we've been gathering for presents and this, that, and the other thing. And people have different beliefs and have different traditions and what they think about Santa Claus, what they think about a tree represents, uh, the Christmas tree, what it represents, and pagan holidays and winter solstice and, and Christians and Christmas and all those. There's all kinds of wild things that people believe even at the Christmas time. But the reason that you can approach this text in multiple ways, multiple facets, is the fact and the reality that its conclusion is still the same. Jesus is the Son of God, and so we can also claim everything that the world might believe, that everything that the pagans try to separate or uh, celebrate is given meaning only in Jesus. Meaning, we can reclaim everything that this world says is truth but really isn't for Jesus because Jesus then is the truth. Meaning a fat guy who comes down a chimney to give gifts to kids that don't deserve it, don't deserve it and haven't earned it, points to the reality and the truth that Jesus comes to give sinners salvation. And he is the greatest gift. So we take the stories that have in the myths and the legends, and we can reshape them and reclaim them and say, now that points to Jesus, and that's the truth. And that's what John is doing. It's one of the many things that John is doing, is he's lifting out the truth and reality all at the same time, and it's all found in Jesus. The other reason why we're looking at this passage and understanding that it's multifaceted, because you have a role in the passage. You are the supporting character in this narrative. When it throws in and sprinkles in those little episodes of John testifying about the Son of God, that is meant for you. Because you can read yourself into the text. I don't usually tell people to do that because people do that way too much. It's usually not meant for them to insert their name. It's meant for Jesus to be lifted out. But here, we are given the opportunity to participate in the story. And this is how. We do it just like John the Baptist. John the Baptist testifies about the light because he's experienced the light. He believes in the light. He knows the light. And he's testifying about it. And that's our role in this narrative. This is a living text. It's not something that John just wrote way back in the day. It's, a, it's something that's relevant now. And we are invited into it to lift out the hero in the story of each and every person's life. And that's Jesus Christ. And we got to give testimony to that. But how can you give testimony to something you have not experienced yourself? How can you, get, how can you tell other people about the light if it's not even shining in you? If you can't present to them some sort of illumination about what Jesus has done in your life, how can you testify? And so you need to wrestle with yourself, even in this text, to understand that I need to get to know this truth that John is revealing to us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And so I know there's a ton of things, and I could be, I literally, I literally could go for four or five hours about this because it's such deep and rich and delicious of a text. But today, for the sake of brevity, I just want to talk about three things, okay? I'm going to take it easy on you guys. We're going to talk about three things. One is relationship to the word. We're going to look at verses one through five and the relationship to the word, the relationship to Jesus. Then we're going to look at reaction to the word, which is verses 9 through 13. Then we're going to look at the reception of the word into our lives, verses 14 through 18. So let's look at verses 1 through 5 and the relationship to the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that, was, that has not come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Relationship to the word. You know, one of my favorite uh, songs to dance to at weddings is Footloose, or any place, any dance hall, whatever. It's definitely Footloose, because Footloose has Kevin Bacon. Have you guys heard about this theory uh, called Bacon's Law. You might also know it as uh, six degrees of separation. So in Hollywood, there exists this Bacon Law that every actor has been somehow connected to Kevin Bacon. Either they've worked with somebody that worked with Kevin Bacon, or they know of somebody who worked with somebody who worked with somebody who worked with Kevin Bacon. This is exactly, Bacon's Law is almost employed here at the very first five verses. And let me point out how. One is we see Jesus, the word's relationship to the divine. Right? We know because of verse 17 that John is talking about that this word is Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus is God. Jesus' relationship to the divine divine means he's part of the Trinity. He does not live outside of it. He wasn't created, but he is a part of it. Jesus is the son of God. He has a relationship with the Trinity. He is divine. He is deity. Second, in verse 2, we see his relationship to the Father. Right? As son. Look at verse 2. We're just going to walk through these verses. He was in the beginning with God. And so not only do we have a relationship, not only does Jesus, deity, but he also has a relationship with the Father. From that relationship, creation happened, which leads us to a relationship with creation. Look at verse 3. All things came into being through him. Who's that? Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus has a specific and unique relationship with creation. He has a specific and unique relationship with your specific lives. It was created through him, by him, and for him. Theologically, then, we can conclude, and it's reasonable to believe, that your life is not your own, it belongs to Jesus. But yet many of us, if not all of us, at times are living as if this is my life. No, you were created by, through, and for Jesus. So not only does Jesus has a relationship with the divine. He has a relationship with the Father. He has a relationship with creation and making all things and through all things and in him all things hold together. He has a relationship with man. Verse 4, in him was life. In Jesus is life. Do I need to define what life is or do you guys have experience with it? In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Jesus has a relationship to man. What is that relationship? You will not experience life apart from Jesus. True life. I'm sure you'll experience some element of life. You can breathe, right? You can experience elements of joy, happiness, sadness, difficulty. You're going to experience some aspect of life because That's what you were created to do. But ultimate experience of life only comes in Jesus Christ. And your life only begins to shine, and you only begin to get illuminated. You only get to live life as you were meant to live, only in Jesus, not in anything else. Only in Jesus. That's the word's relationship to you. If that's the word's relationship to you, 
And this is the word, and we're to read it, to know it, because it has been made to reveal who God is. It explains who the Father is. It reveals who Jesus is and how he's lived his life. Then should we not study it? Should we not hide it in our hearts? Should we not lift it out in our services? Live it, live it out and lift it up in our living rooms with our children, with our friends, with our family? Should it be on the edge of our tongue? Should it be in the forefronts of our mind? If it is the, the thing through which we are illuminated that it brings light into the dark recesses of our hearts, then shouldn't we align ourselves more to it? Shouldn't we have a relationship with this word? And lastly, in verse 5, there is a relationship to darkness, sin and death. Jesus has a relationship with that. It says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. It might say comprehend, but the Greek word is better understood as overcome. We are more than victors with Jesus Christ. We can overcome. We just don't defeat. We overtake and overcome in Jesus Christ. The relationship that sin and death have with Jesus is the fact they no longer exist because of him. It's a dead one. He overcomes darkness and brings light into it. These are the relationships that Jesus has that we find that John is pointing out to us. But he also does this. So who are we in the relationship with? What do we come to know more about this word in Jesus? There's, just, there's a, a ton of things, but I'm just going to lift out a handful of things. One, it's word. It's truth. Today I'm going to use a lot of language that refers to truth. Ultimate reality, not virtual reality. Ultimate reality. I want to present to you not just an idea, but the reality of that idea made manifest, incarnate, came in the flesh. It's a person we, that we can come to know. It's, it's reading the word that we can come to have truth in our lives and that by in having truth in our lives, we can live by it. And John is saying this is the word that holds all things together. You know, at weddings, we often say like, you know, what God has brought together, let no man separate. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Yeah. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is that word. This is the thing that bonds all things together. Not only are we talking about uh, truth. And the thing about truth is also the, the fact that we can read through the lies and the confusion. It's, it's not a secret, but in my life, I have often been susceptible to lies of Satan and the difficulties that have clouded my mind because of my sin. And I have often exchanged what was true according to God's word for some other false truth, a facade, a masquerade. And I said, no, I, I, I exchanged that for this because this seems more reasonable to me at this time. When we're confronted and when we dive into the word of God, when we dive into Jesus, he clears away all that fog and he starts lighting the lamppost that illuminates your path to where you can see clearly where you're going. And when he does that, some of you are going to find that you're very off the beaten path. Truth brings us back in. Truth unfogs our mind. And only truth in God's word Eternal. We learn that Jesus has always existed. Eternal. Okay, so what's the big deal? I asked this to my wife earlier. I just wanted to see what she would say. and Because I, I don't feel like a lot of people have already said, like, explain to me why, what the significance is for Jesus to be eternal. Okay, so he's always existed. What's the big deal for me? Why, why should I care about that? It's great. And you might have a high and lofty theological idea of it or an explanation, but bring it down home. Jesus is eternal. Okay. And as I began to ponder this, as I began to dwell on this, I began to look at my own life. I began to realize that there are things in my life that are obviously not eternal. And by eternal, I think you can also um, relate loyalty, faithfulness. One of the things that the Hebrews attributed to God was his loving kindness and his faithfulness throughout all generations. Being eternal means you've always existed. 
meaning you will always exist. There's no starting point. There's no ending point. Many of us want to find someone or something in our lives that we can count on. That's not going to leave us. That we can't be separated from. Be it by death or some tragedy or some body's decision to leave us. The eternal nature of Jesus speaks to his loyalty. He is here. He is real. He is true. If you orient your life to him, then you know that you have a mainstay always and forever. His presence is always going to exist. Things may pop up and things may leave in your life, but he will not. That's the big deal of why we need to proclaim Jesus is eternal. He didn't start. He's never going to be finished. He's always going to be. And he could be in my life if you receive him. That's the big deal. Existence. We're given here the idea of existence, of how things came to be. John is revealing to us the thing that everybody is seeking to answer in their lives. Why was I born? Why was I created? What am I supposed to do? What's my calling in life? For some of us, who is it I'm to marry? Right? We had this conversation uh, yesterday. Right? What, what am I to do with my life? The things I find myself doing now, what purpose do they have? What meaning do they hold? My job. What am I doing? Is it solely just to provide for my family? Is my job fulfilling some element of my own intuition and my own uh, happiness and joy? What John is lifting out here is your existence relies solely on Jesus. And if you are pursuing any other means of your existence, if you are trying to find any other avenues to fill your existence with some sort of pseudo facet of, of, uh, uh, of meaning and purpose, you're wrong. Many of you, maybe some of you, maybe all of us, I don't know, are right now believing that we know our lives and have specific purposes for why we do certain things. But if it's devoid of Jesus, then you're wrong. I don't know how else to say that because I'm confronted with that reality in this text. All things come into being because of Jesus. All things are for Jesus. And if there's something you're doing in your life that is devoid and has nothing to do with Jesus, then you are not meant to be doing that thing. Our whole lives are meant for Jesus. When I got into ministry, I just wanted one thing to be made known. I'm, it's all about Jesus. Everything. I want, to, I, want, I want to tag that on. Every tagline after everything I say is like, it's about Jesus. Are you at the job you have because that's where Jesus has called you to? Or is that something that you were told by your parents to do? Are you in the job you have now because you were told you need to provide for, for your family or that you want to have a certain um, level of, of life standard, that you want to have some sort of idea of wealth? Are you pursuing the mighty dollar or are you doing it for Jesus? I can stand up here and speak from my own experience. Having left the ministry because of other external things forcing my, my decision in that regard, saying like, Jesus, I know you've called me to the ministry I prepared, I oriented my whole life to do it and to pursue it, and now I'm about to leave it because I feel the pressure of, at the time, my ex-wife, my, my dad who rejected me for pursuing the ministry. It's like, I can make all these relationships better, but I have to leave the very thing that you've created me to do. And when I left, and all the way up to the time that I first took this pulpit in this church, I have felt aimless and purpose, purposeful-less. I, I had been trying to substitute that purpose and meaning and reality of Jesus in my life with other things. And there are some nights that I felt like I filled it, only to be found the next morning, I'm empty. I, I got frustrated in all the jobs because that I had because I, I just didn't realize that I wasn't doing it for Jesus. 
I was doing it for others. Or I was even doing it for myself. Because this is what, what the world says you need to do. You, the, the, the world has structured your life if, you, if you're not aware of it. First priority, when I go over there on Thursdays and uh, I'm talking to the leaders and all these kids, they're involved in all kinds of these clubs. They're trying to really work hard on their grades because that's all a good thing, right? But if you talk to every one of them, all of their plans are cookie cutter. It's like, well, if I'm involved in all this stuff, all these extracurricular activities, I create a resume for myself that promotes me in such a fashion that I can get really good jobs. If I get a really good job, I make a lot of money. If I make a lot of money, I can have all the things that bring happiness into our lives, right? And if I bring happiness into our lives, then I'm somebody that can be highly respected because I made it work. I did it. Your existence begins your, your life is defined. Your calling is in Jesus. Nothing else. And I'm not an idiot. I know that that's really hard. Because if you wrestle with that reality right now, there might be a whisper of a voice in your head right now that's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, this is why you have to quit your job. This is why you have to pivot in your life. This is why you got to sell your home and move. This is why you have to get rid of the relationship in your life. This is why you have to get this relationship in your life. This is, this is your next step. You thought it was that one, but it's that one. Pivoting in your life is a very difficult thing. It takes quite a bit of faith, a lot of trust. But praise be to God, it's trust and faith in the one who's always existed, who has seen all of history, every single culture that's ever existed, all kinds of civil, civilizations rise up and fall down, and yet he still remains. So it seems to be the most logical thing to place your faith in him and to pursue your life and journey through your life with him navigating, not you. You might need to decrease so that Christ can increase in your life. It's nice to have a lot of money and to have a lot of things and make sure all our kids are taken care of. I, I'm, I'm there. I, I wrestle with that. But I don't want to promote that in my child's life more than they come to know Jesus, more that Jesus impacts their life, more than, more than I can be putting more of Jesus into their life than anything else. A couple other things that we're pointing out is, is life and light. In the first five verses, that's all we've gotten to thus far. And John has revealed all these things. This is how deep and rich and tasty and delicious this text is. If you want to live, then you need to receive Christ. And if you want to have life to the fullest, then you need to dive in deep in your relationship with Jesus more than anything. I mean, I can, I can sit here and I can go on as, as Marshall and I talk about each and every one of you. What we see, what we desire for you, not from a friend's perspective, not from a family perspective, but as someone who has to shepherd people to Jesus to say, this is our hope, this is our prayer, this is our desire for each and every person here. And that is to come to know Jesus and to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Each one of those deeply. We move. These aren't, I don't want to go through all these as just theological bulletin points about the deity of Jesus as if we can't explain it. I really want to dive in deep and realize that Jesus is a reality. He is logical. He is true. Right? He is God, yet he's a person that you can get to know. He's a friend. He's a spouse. And he is faithful because he's eternal. I don't have, this isn't theory. 
This isn't speculation. This isn't some kind of thing I'm presenting as an alternative to truth. It is only one truth, and it is Jesus. He is the only true idea, and he is the ultimate reality. You will find a bunch of people skeptical in this life. You will, can just go right across the street, down the road. You can go into your places of work, and you're going to find people who wrestle with the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. You're going to find people wrestling with the idea that their life has meaning and purpose, but only in Jesus. They want their own intuition to inform them. They don't want to be told what to do. They would rather take this truth and do what I did in my past and exchange it for a lie that stimulates them for a moment, but then fades. And what I've come to understand, in, in, in all of history, people have always done this. People have always fought and rebelled against the idea of God and what he desires and how he has created things and how he wills things. And we have all, humanity has cried out and rebelled against him and we've all been in the dark. We, we reject the light. We don't want it. And I would argue and I lift out that this is something that what I'm telling you, to you today, what John is revealing in his writing right here to you, is he is lifting before you the truth of the matter of all of life, and that is Jesus. Anybody who doubts, anybody who's skeptical, they have the burden of proof. It's funny, when you take apologetics class, or when you take any philosophy class, there's a, there is reasoning and logic that is lifted out that you're just like, how do people continue to live the way they do? How do people continue to believe the things they do? It has been made real. It has been explained. It has been revealed in a word, and yet we continue to reject it. How is that? It's because people don't want the real truth. They want a truth that is easy for them. But I would say any skeptic, anyone doubting that Jesus is the Son of God, the burden of proof is on you. You have the argument from silence. You are the one that has to defend your theories. You are the one that has to defend your, what you are calling truth. I don't. It has been revealed not only in idea, but has been made in reality. That is the greatest of all things. You might have something according to your own intuition. You might be the only source of your own truth, but I have a source that's outside of me, outside of you, that has always existed, and that is Jesus. He is the Son of God, and he comes to bring life into your life. If you reject it, it will be hell for you. But if you receive it, it will be heaven, and, and one with the Father through Jesus Christ. And maybe we don't have any skeptics or doubters here this morning, but I'm, I, I, I think that you might know somebody who is. The second thing is the reaction to the word. So all of this, if this is the word, if this is what was from the beginning, and it's Jesus, how have people responded to it? And guys, this is going to be very sobering. Verses 9 through 13. There was true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own. And those who were, who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. Here's the reaction to this word, this logos, this reality, this truth. People have said, as it's come into the word, as it's come into my ears, as it's come into my heart, I reject it and it's hell, hell for you. Jesus even came to his own people, the people that were supposed to be set apart for him. And they did not even recognize him as God. And it is hell for them. If you reject Jesus, it is hell for you. I know that I offend you, but your stench of sin has been offensive to God for the longest of time. And he, he will not mingle with it. He will not dwell with it. He will save it. He will rescue it. But if you don't receive it, you will continue down the path that you chose for yourself and it will not end good for you. Let me just say this again. I'm not going to promote anything in my life, in my ministry, or at this church that is outside of Jesus. I'm going to lift before you the truth and the reality of Jesus because that is the only way you will find true joy, peace, and hope, and love. 
The very things these, campo, these candles and this light represents is Jesus himself, his attributes and what he can bring into your life to set you ablaze in fire. If you don't want it, there's nothing else I could do for you. I have no other truth to give you. I have no other remedies. I only have Jesus. And we're going to lift Jesus out to you and present him to you to say, orient your whole life. Make your whole life about him. You cannot go wrong. And not that you could just relate to it, but the fact is you just need to revere that Jesus is God, whether you understand it or not. Jesus informs your life. He gives it purpose and meaning. A life, the life we were created to live cannot be experienced in the same way we approach a job, checking in, checking out. Clocking in, clocking out. That's not the relationship I desire for you to have with Jesus. I'm only going to do it when I need to do it, just to represent some kind of, hey, I'm going I'm to do this thing. So other people can know I'm about Jesus. When in the shadows, in your own home, in your own life, you make your own personal decisions and say, well, Jesus isn't going to enlighten my decision here. I'm going to do this because I enjoy it. Don't approach Jesus. Don't come to Jesus like you do your job. He's more than a job. Don't approach him like a hobby, an extracurricular activity. Don't approach him like we do football games and everything else that we do. Approach him with all of your life. It's costly. Following Jesus is just not the state fair where we're going to go and have a bunch of fun. It's going to cost you. You're going to be walking a tight road with Jesus in the world. On one hand, you're going to not live according to the truth, but at least you'll be accepted by everybody around you. Your friends, your family, and the world is not going to have a problem with you. Or you can receive Jesus, but be rejected by the world. Let me throw out another um, argument, another claim. A few weeks ago, I I talked to you about um, Pascal's um, diversion. This theory, why are people so busy still, even though we have modern technology? And he presents this theory of diversion. He had another thing that's very famous, Pascal's wager. And he says to the skeptic, he says, okay, maybe you question the existence of God. Maybe you question uh, whether he is real or not. That's fine. But let's just say he is. But you live your life as if he's not. When you come to the end of your life, that's going to be a pretty drastic ending for you. Right? But let's just say if he does exist and we live our life and we wager on the side of God that he is existing, then what are the benefits? If you, like a good person who's making decisions, want to weigh the pros and cons in those solutions, where should you wager your life? If you are a betting person, where should you put all your money, all your resources, all your time? The fact that God does exist, that he does have a plan for your life, and that you are meant to live the life that he's created you to live rather than on your own, as if he doesn't exist. You're walking a tightrope. You might find temporary acceptance among those who do not like God and do not want to be with God, or you'll find favor with the one who has always existed and who supersedes throughout all of history and civilizations and cultures. And if you're a betting person, let me appeal to your reason and logic there. Where are you going to find yourself? And lastly, reception of the word. Verses 14 through 18. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he whom I said, He who comes after me is higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For For his fullness we all have received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. There are three, if you paid attention to those verses, there are three fullnesses, the word full, happening there. 
One is that you can fully know Jesus. He has been, he is a real person who lived life, who we can come to know and experience how he lived, and we can come to have that experience through the Holy Spirit in our own lives. We can come to fully know Jesus. That's what John is saying here in these verses. Secondly, that we can fully receive grace upon grace, grace upon grace. Here's the fun reality. This happened yesterday. And again, I didn't ask permission to share this because I usually don't. Um, so forgive me. Um, but uh, this idea that, that Jesus brings truth and grace. What is truth and grace? I had this manifested before me yesterday. We were uh, together as a family. And when I say family, I mean the Dags and I. We're all together, right? And we're sitting on the back porch. And um, won't mention their name, but one of the children of the clan of Dag um, was not behaving its best. And so um, when you see grandma dragging a kid, then all the fathers are like, oh, there's some, yeah, that, that dude's dead. And so um, what I saw was uh, the papa getting up to go before the father went to deal with this. Because the papa is gracious. He's like, I want to get, and I, even, even Hal said this, I wanted to get to him before his dad got to him. But then Justin gets up. And Justin goes, oh, I'm going to deal with it. Because sometimes we both need grace and truth. Papa and dad and Jesus is both. Sometimes you need to be told the truth. And it's not going to be easy. And it's probably going to hurt a little bit. But then there's grace. There's Papa's grace. Who wants to speak kindness, loving kindness, and draw you to repentance. And that's what we have. We have the fullness of Jesus that we can get to know him. We have the fullness of grace and truth coming into us. We have God, the Father, explained fully for us in the life of Jesus. He has made him known. God does not play hide and seek with us. This is what John's good news is. He has made himself known in great detail. This is why I say the skeptics and the doubters have an argument from silence because we have all of this, the word of God, that presents God the Father as all that we need to know about him in this life, all that we need to know to live a life of godliness has been written down for us, has been lived out before us, has been declared to us and demonstrated. We are without excuse. We have more than enough. They don't, but we do, and we ought to live by it. God does not hide. And if he is hiding, maybe it's for a couple reasons. One, you are succumbing to, this, to Satan and his lies, that he's fogging your mind and making you veer from the light. And when you, it's hard to see where the light is in the midst of fog and the darkness that shadows your mind that Satan will love and intentionally seek to put into your mind and into your life and into your heart. The other thing is the fact that you, your own sin prevents you from seeing the true light as well. You're your own worst enemy, oftentimes because of sin. So it's not the fact that God has not revealed himself it's not the fact that he has not revealed what purpose and meaning is for your life. He has, but we oftentimes are blinded to it because we, in our own tuition, want to pursue something else and we want to exchange the truth for a lie. According to Romans chapter 1, that's what Paul says all men do is exchange the truth for a lie. Or we have an enemy who wants to kill us and destroy us and never reveal to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants us to deny it and to deny him and follow him to the pits of hell. That's a very difficult game to play. But praise be to God, we have Jesus Christ, that the darkness cannot overcome those who are in the light. Finally, we're given here the image of what happens. Going back to creation with me for a second, and I'm almost finished. Go back to creation. Do you remember the sweet image of Adam walking with God in the cool of the day? Where light was radiant in a garden, and that's what it seems like all of life is meant to be with God in relationship. But yet because Adam and Eve, they left the light, pursued darkness, pursued the lies, and it was so dark because of sin, we can't find our way back to walking with God. And so Jesus, through Jesus, Moses was given a law, a lantern of sorts, 
to light and illuminate the path that would direct us back into relationship with God. Right? We sing this, don't we? A light unto my feet. Where does it go? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But still, that, that seems to pale in comparison to just walking with God in the cool of the day without a need of a lantern. But the law was given to illuminate our path upon our feet, to walk, to find God again, and to walk with him. And now we have Jesus. What's Jesus? John says he's the light of all men. So now the word can be hidden in your heart. The wick of man's heart has been remade. It's been fashioned to illuminate and to burn with the power and the light of Jesus in their life. So that now, because of Jesus, our light shines and we can find ourselves in relationship with God only through Jesus. No longer do we need a lantern. No longer do we need the law, but now we have grace and truth and Jesus' life in ours. And now we can be in relationship with God. There's a few points of application here. One I want to talk about real briefly, a broken signpost. Every single person is looking for truth. Every single person. Many find it in God's word and others don't, but they claim to know truth. That's a broken signpost. If all of the world is looking for some element of truth, and I can sit here and talk about all the dumb ways that our world seems to be finding truth, it's, it just, it's so illogical and it's ignorant and it's dumb. But people are, are parading around like, oh, this is truth, this is reality, and it's not. But the fact that all of us are searching is the broken signpost that says there is truth to be found. And I'm telling you, that truth, that reality, is Jesus. And that's what you need to be pursuing with your life. Remember, there's dispersed throughout this text, John the Baptist. And he's the character that we can identify with the most. Because we're to testify about Jesus. My prayer for you today is that you will come to know the real Jesus as he has been made revealed to you through this word. That you would be called into a relationship with him and so that you can experience real life, a life walked with God himself as it was intended to be from the beginning. My prayer for those who already have this life in Christ Jesus would to grow in their love for him and desire by the Spirit to share that love and truth with others. So what do we do now? What do we do with this word? It's very simple but difficult. Maybe there's some things you need to repent of. Maybe there's some darkness in your life, some sin that keeps you from right relationship with God. Or maybe there's some false truth you need to expel from your life. Maybe there's some really hard, difficult situations that you need to do. Whatever it is in your life that you need to repent of means to turn around, to change. You need to make that known to God. Not tomorrow, not an hour from now, but right now. I know it's been a long time. I know this has maybe been heady for you. I don't know. It's been heady for me. Uh, maybe, I don't know where you are. Maybe you're just extremely tired because your kids woke you up early yesterday. I don't know where it is, but today, right now, is an opportunity that we do almost every Sunday, and that is we come and live the reality of Jesus by taking communion. But before we do that, we get ourselves right with Jesus, and we repent of the sins that we're aware of, and we ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the repentance uh, of the things that we need to repent of that we're not aware of. And then once we have been depleted and repentant of that sin that that clouds our minds and clouds our hearts, then we can begin to receive that gospel, begin to receive Jesus in fully because we have made room for him and he is coming in to receive and then we can respond to this word. We can respond and say, I have not been living my life for the, the true reality of things and that's Jesus. There are things that I have to do now and I'm going to live for them. 
regardless of the external people in my life and what they might think or say, I'm going to live for Jesus. So you need to confess your sin. You need to proclaim the truth that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of your life. And then you need to come and dine in being in relationship with Jesus. And that's what we're going to do. And so as we move into the invitation of the table, let me just say that Christ Jesus, the Lord, invites you to his table. All who love him, all who believe in him, all those who know that he is the truth and the light of all men, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Let me pray this confession for us all. God of grace and truth, in Christ Jesus, you came among us as light shining in darkness. We confess that we have not welcomed the light or trusted good news to be good. We have, cl we have closed our eyes to glory in our midst, expecting little and hoping for less. Forgive our doubt and renew our hope so that we may receive the fullness of your grace and to live in the truth of Christ the Lord. Hear this declaration. Well, before you do that, before I do that, right now I offer this silence to you to repent and to confess. Hear this declaration. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, eternal. I declare to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are all forgiven. May the God of mercy, who forgives you all your sins, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen.